Well, I just want to thank you, church family, for the past couple weeks, your kind hospitality uh, as we've welcomed a, a new child to our family. And uh, we, we're well fed, so thank you so much uh, for your, your kindness towards us. And uh, I just uh, consider it an honor and a privilege to be able to serve you over the next few months while Blair's away. Uh, don't take that lightly, and I just appreciate your prayers over this time. And just so thankful uh, to be able to serve uh, this, this wonderful church family. So please bow with me as uh, we pray. Our Lord, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the privilege of being able to proclaim your word. I pray for all of us, Lord, as your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that it will convict our hearts, comfort us. Lord, shape us, mold us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thankful for the gospel. Thankful for salvation. I'm thankful for the Holy Spirit who gives us understanding. And I pray all these things in Christ's holy and righteous name. Amen. Now, I have to admit, I don't know much about cars. Some of you may love cars. You may be a mechanic or just a car aficionado. You know how engines run and how cars are built and have no problem fixing them. In fact, you fix everything. I can't. It just doesn't thrill me. However, I have learned a lot about cars over the years. You know why? I have spent tons and tons of money getting our cars fixed. So that, that's been a motivating factor for learning how they run. I check my tires constantly, check the air pressure and the treads, because I know what it's like to have blowouts on a busy interstate and have a flat on the side of the road. I'm paranoid about noises and movements my cars make just because I've, I've spent thousands and thousands of dollars on belt changes and hoses and alternators and transmissions. Learning car parts in and of itself to me is not that exciting, but it's become interesting to me because it's highly important because you don't know how important something is until it breaks or malfunctions. Church polity or church structure probably doesn't sound all that exciting to the average Christian. Oh yeah, we, we may, the thought of the church and the, the fact that she is the bride of Christ may thrill our souls, but how a local church is to operate may not do the same for us. It doesn't until you see what happens when a church isn't functioning the way it's supposed to according to Scripture and it malfunctions, and it gets ugly. It leaves tons of damage, and the repairs are costly. And many of you have seen this firsthand. You know why God has ordained the pastoral epistles to be written. And that's probably why Satan hates these letters so much and has been behind the firing of many pastors who have preached these letters. But God didn't leave us in the dark as to how the church is to operate. He is clear, and we just need to listen. And just because something is healthy now doesn't mean it'll always be that way. Brand new, expensive cars will still need maintenance. 
But before we delve into the structure of the church, we must know what the church, the true offspring of Abraham is. Well, the basic definition is assembly, the Greek word ekklesia, assembly. But assembly, this assembly has several qualifications. A basic Baptist or biblical definition of the church, which derives from the synthesis of uh, of, of several passages and examples from the New Testament is this. A, a basic definition is a, a, of the church is a, a local assembly of baptized Christians who have covenanted together to meet regularly for the preaching of the gospel and the right administration of the ordinances of baptism of Lord's Supper. Now, the church is more than that, but it's nothing less. That being said, this leads us to the first of uh, the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy. Now, Paul writes to Timothy and the church in Ephesus to remind him and them of what he has already taught them. Well, God is a God of order, not chaos, and his people are to be organized. And Paul has left young Timothy to help oversee this congregation and her organization. So this morning we'll be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. 1 Timothy 1, 1 through 11. This section starts us off by showing first and foremost what is the aim of the church's teaching. So in this text we'll see the teaching must be first for the building up of the love and the godliness of the saints. And then we'll see this teaching is to be in accordance with the glorious gospel. First, the church's teaching must be for the building up of the love and the faith of the saints. Look at verses 1 through 7. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So Paul opens this letter in a way that is quite different than what you'd expect someone writing to a close personal friend. He introduces himself as an apostle. Well, Timothy would know this fact. He has another qualification. Apostle by the command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. So why would Paul just include these descriptions of himself to someone who probably knows him better than anybody else except Jesus? Well, he is, he is writing to his true child in the faith, Timothy. A strong term of endearment, by the way. But it's also written for the church in Ephesus. And not only for them, but for all the churches of Christ until he comes again. And this is an important greeting. And it's also important to remember, Paul's greetings are not throwaway phrases. They're purposeful. 
He says, essentially, by command of God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord, our Savior. And notice it's the, the one purpose of both the Father and the Son. And by command, this phrase command, is important because he repeats this language throughout the letter. You'll see throughout this letter the words command, charge, urge, all signifying authority. Christ had given the apostles authority to carry out his word. And since the apostolic age, no one has had this authority. And what is this authority? To speak the word of Christ. The New Testament, the testimony of the apostles, every bit of it is the word of Christ. It carries his authority. All scripture should be red-lettered, if you will. It is all the word of Christ. So what Paul's initiating here in this greeting is the apostolic authority, which is through God the Father and Christ our Lord. And any supposed teaching from the Bible that diverts from the apostolic testimony, i.e. the New Testament gospel, is false. It is not from God. And so that sets us up for the rest of the letter for the structure and teaching of the church. So before we get to the rest of the letter and understanding the importance of how the church is structured, we'll see why Paul writes this pastoral epistle, 1 Timothy. Paul commands Timothy, remain at Ephesus. Well, Paul had to leave for further urgent work in Macedonia, but he leaves his most trusted co-worker, Timothy, to help oversee the congregation, the church in Ephesus. Why? Why is it important for Timothy to stay there? What is going on here in the church of Ephesus? Well, you notice in verse 3, the so that. You probably have heard the phrase many times, when you see a therefore, look and see what it's there for. Well, when you see a, a so that, you know the, the why, the reason for what proceeds is going to follow. Do this so that. So that, and here's the answer. Remain in Ephesus so that, look at the end of verse 3, the, the verse 4. Remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any di different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So that he will rebuke and correct those in the church. And again, these are not outsiders. These are, these are people within the church in Ephesus, who are teaching things from the Bible that are contrary to the gospel, to the New Testament teaching, and wasting their time in vain discussion. Now, when I say from the Bible, I mean they're using texts and either twisting them or using them out of context, maybe out of ignorance, but out of selfish and prideful intentions. And so what were they teaching and wasting their time on? Well, myths genealogical mysteries, obscure parts of the law without understanding the law's purpose. They would take, they would take say, a gap in the Old Testament narrative and, and fill it in with fanciful stories that were merely for entertainment rather than for building up. In other words, if the biblical narratives were silent about a detail, they would go on with their own details, essentially adding to the Word of God. They would look at genealogies and try to find things in there that aren't there. 
And as verses 6 and 7 explain, how they would teach things from the Old Testament law, not knowing the context or why the law was there or how to understand the law in light of Christ's advent. And what were they saying? Well, possibly in chapter 4, verses 2 through 4 of the same letter, it may give us a clue as to what they were teaching. Well, they were also forbidding marriage, going beyond Old Testament law. They were also forbidding certain foods, now, we, we know that Christ has declared all foods clean and they are to be received with thanksgiving. But they wanted to put Christians back under the food laws given to ancient Israel, a specific people at a specific time. Again, not understanding context. Possibly they were also from the circumcision party, saying that all Christians not only need to believe in Jesus, but to be perfected, they must be circumcised. If not, they aren't saved. Again, no understanding of context. But hey, they are confident in what they're saying. And then Paul just shows their foolishness. So what was the goal of these certain persons? What was the goal of their endeavors and their teachings? All their time that ended in speculation and vanity? Well, they desired to be teachers of the law. They desired prestige. They desired praise for themselves. Their glory was their aim. So how was Timothy to respond to this? What was the teaching that was to be passed on? What was the aim of the teaching? Well, he and the church, for that matter, were to pass on what the apostles had taught. Nothing contrary. Nothing contrary to the gospel of Christ. And the aim of the teaching is in verse 5. Look at verse 5 again. The aim of our charge that is given from God. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. The aim is love. Love for God and for his people. Not love for self and not love for our own glory. And this love is accompanied with purity, a clean conscience and faith. So our teaching Timothy, the church, our teaching is to be for the glory of God, the building up of the church, and always and always in line with the gospel. This is the stewardship that was given to Paul, which was passed down to Timothy, which was passed down to the church at Ephesus, and then passed down to us. And it's never done for our glory, but for Christ's glory. And it's never done for entertainment, but for encouragement. The church teaches to build up the saints and the gospel. Now, this this passage reminds me about this time last year. I was on a a senior adult trip to Gatlinburg with our previous church. And, of course, it had been a, a long day. Lots of traffic, lots of waiting in lines. Well, we were going to ride on a trolley from, from Pigeon Forge into Gatlinburg, and of course the trolley is jam-packed. So I'm standing in the middle holding on to a pole with another gentleman who was a, a tourist from, from Pennsylvania. And we get to talking, and he, uh, he, he asks me what I do. And I tell him I'm a pastor. And you never know what kind of reaction you're going to get when you give that answer. Well, he smiles and says, I've got a question for you. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, Lord, what is, what is he going to ask? Well, he proceeds to ask, was Jesus perfect? 
I'm thinking to myself, is he trying to trick me? I don't know. So I say, well, yes, of course. He then asked, then what day is the day of worship? I tell him, well, every day is a day of worship. (laughs) And as I'm saying these things, I mean, as I'm saying them, he's shaking his head. No. I'm like, how, how can you disagree with that? But... He goes on to say, no, the, the Sabbath is Saturday, and that is the day of worship. And I proceed to tell him that the Old Testament understanding of the Sabbath was a solemn day for, the, for rest for the people of Israel. And Christians gather as a church on Sunday as a memorial to Christ's resurrection. Again, he's shaking his head, no. Well, we go back and forth about this and why Christians gather on Sunday and he would make these arrogant claims and it was really condescending to me. But as I was listening to him, I could gather he was depending upon this, his observance of this Saturday Sabbath and also the food laws of the Old Testament for his justification before God, even though he never could express an assurance of salvation. He even had the audacity to tell me that, you know, once, once you discover that the day of worship is Saturday, the scales are going to fall down from your eyes. But later on, I mean, I, of course, yeah, our stop had come, and I was tired from getting nowhere with this guy. But later on, it's, it's just, I'm just bothered by this conversation, you know, walking down the streets of Gatlinburg. Can't even enjoy Gatlinburg. I wanted to go back to him and say, no, no, sir. No, sir, the scales, the scales fell from my eyes when I trusted in Christ alone for my salvation. He is the one I worship every day. And we as a church gather together, celebrate his resurrection on Sundays because he lives and he is the Sabbath breath for the people, people of God. This is an instance of taking something from the Bible and running with it without any understanding of how it fits within the whole of God's counsel. His whole aim was to prove me wrong and himself right. Our aim as a church is not to prove one is wrong, but to direct them to who is right, namely Jesus Christ through his word. So do you or someone you know, get, do they get caught up in Teachings that may reference Scripture but are far from Christ and what his apostles have taught us. In this day and age, we have so many great biblical resources that our brothers and sisters in Christ hundreds of years ago never had. But we also have all types of false teachings easily accessible as well. They creep into our churches through the influence of TV and Internet. Prosperity TV preachers are one example. They take promises in the Old Testament to Israel, make no reference to how they're fulfilled in Christ, individualize them, apply them to individuals that if they do certain things, have enough faith, they will live a blessed life of finance and health. Prosperity. There are those who take individual laws and diets and say, hey, follow these and God will bless your life. Using these principles... They'll usually have some principle behind it from these laws. Or maybe, maybe you know of teachers who make a lot of money off of end-time speculations and build the empire of fear-mongering rather than encouraging the saints with the hope of Christ's return. Have you fallen prey to these things? Do you know someone who has? 
When we remember Christ's will for your, our lives, his church, it is our godliness which is displayed in faith toward him and love toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. Ask, does this teaching fall in line with what Christ has taught us through his apostles? Ask, is this teaching for the building up of the teacher or for the building up of the church? Is it promoting a life in step with the fruit of the Spirit? True scriptural teaching promotes these things. And the church's teaching is to promote God's glory and love for one another. So along with this, the church's teaching also must be in, in accordance with the glorious gospel of Christ. Look at verses 8 through 11. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their mother, fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So now Paul goes on to, to make something abundantly clear. The law is good. All of God's word is good. All of God's word is inerrant. All of it is true. All of God's word is eternal. The problem isn't with the equipment. There is the user error. The law of God is eternal and good, but many people who read it or hear it misuse it. They don't understand the purpose or the purposes of the law. So what does Paul say here? Well, the law is good, but you have to use it lawfully. In other words, you have to understand it the right way. Well, first, you have to understand it's never to be used as a means of justifying yourself before God. It is never used as a means of gaining merit from God. Well, how is it first to be used? How are we to understand it? First of all, it's, it's not to be used like the way these certain persons were using it. Now, Paul is not saying this is the only purpose of the law, but the first, the primary. It is not appointed for the justified in Christ. It is designated, put down for the evildoers. The, and he lists examples of these after a general reference to lawbreakers and the holy, unholy. The law is meant to condemn those who kill their parents, to condemn adulterers and fornicators, to condemn those who engage in homosexual acts, to condemn slave traders, to condemn liars, and to condemn false witnesses. And he uses these extreme examples to show that the law is meant to break even the most profane sinners to lead them to repentance and faith in the only Savior, Jesus Christ. It is meant to restrain the chaos that evil brings. He goes from the general, the unholy, to the specific, for example, adulterers, back to the general, to whatever is contrary to sound doctrine. He includes not just the profane, but what is not in line with sound doctrine. It's also condemned by the law. Now, is this the law's only purpose? No, Paul is just addressing the issue that is at hand. These certain persons were using it as a means of salvation and justification 
and merit gaining something from God. So what does he do? He exposes their sinfulness through the mirror of the law. The law breaks us and shows us our need for a Savior. It also shows us who God is, that he is holy and he is just and he is loving. As New Covenant Christians, his law instructs us on who he is and how are we to live, although we don't apply it in the same way as the ancient Israelites were to do. Now, to understand what Paul is getting at here is this. Take, for example, speed limit laws. Speed limits are good things. Most people on the road, most people on the road obey the speed limit signs. That's a loose phrase there, most. However, did they do it for God's glory? Is that the motive? No. No, they just don't want to pay a heavy fine. But it restrains, for the most part, chaos. People get speeding tickets. Many of them learn their lesson and obey the speed limit to avoid further punishments. But there's something I've never heard of is this, is, is someone getting pulled over by a policeman saying, you know, I've been watching you for the past 10 or so miles, and you have perfectly gone the speed limit, never going a, a single decimal above the limit. So for that, here is a certificate and a $500 prize. Nope, there is only condemnation for, uh, from the law of speed limits. No commendations. In the same way, God's law is meant to be understood not as the ends, but the means. The means by which we are led to the Savior. I mean, anything that leads us to the Savior is a good thing. So going back to that final clause in verses 10 through 11. The law is meant to condemn anything, anything that is contrary to God's will, which is perfectly revealed in the gospel. That's why Paul ends this section with a qualification of what sound doctrine or literally healthy teaching is. It's always in accordance with the gospel of the glory of God. And what is this gospel? It's this. That God is the creator and sustainer of all the earth, and it's perfect and holy and righteous judge. We, human beings, are made in his image, but have sinned against him. We have broken his law, and the outcome of our sin is eternal death, eternal separation from God and his glory, eternal hell. But God, in his love, sent his son Jesus Christ to perfectly fulfill the law, to die on the cross, to receive our punishment for our sin. He was raised bodily from the grave and is seated with the Father and will come again to judge the whole world. And to receive the forgiveness of sins, to escape the judgment and, eternal, and have eternal life with God, you must turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. You must trust him and what he has done alone. Nothing else, no works, no ritual, nothing else but his atoning work, his atoning sacrifice for your sin. And if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ, believe on him today. He will save you. This, this is the gospel. This is 
Brothers and sisters, this is the foundation of all that we do. All of our teaching, all the teaching of the church, everything we teach from Scripture is to be in light of the cross of Christ. So do you understand your life as a Christian in light of the cross? Are you still trying to earn God's favor? Do you look down at others who are not as as godly as you are? Is your service to Christ driven by duty and mindless ritual rather than joy in the Lord? Brothers and sisters, if we know Christ, we are saved. We have forgiveness of sins. We are no longer under the condemnation of the law. We are no longer living in the muck and mire of unrepentant sin. Because of this, we can teach others boldly and with patience. I can speak to non-believers confidently because I know I'm no longer condemned. I can teach new believers patiently because I know the patience of God towards me. I've received his mercy. The gospel is the bedrock of all that we do, church. And we lose the gospel, we lose the church. And it's important to know the church and the gospel go hand in hand. The church is given the keys to the kingdom of God. The church is given the ordinances of baptism and Lord's Supper, the pictures or the icons of the, of the gospel. The church is the one given the, the command to make disciples of all nations. And this is a high and blessed calling, but one that is attached with the promise that Christ will be with us to the end. The end of the age. So we see from this beginning section of 1 Timothy that the church, the church is commanded to promote sound teaching that is aimed at the building up of the love and godliness of the church. And that is in accordance with the glorious gospel of Christ. So godliness that is is founded upon the gospel and his word. So when you read the Bible or when you hear it preached or when you're in Bible studies, pay attention to the conversation. Keep the conversation aimed at the building up of faith of one another. Don't get into these endless speculations of rabbit trails of which Scripture is silent. They don't help anyway. Stay focused on the encouraging, correcting, exhorting one another in love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep all of what we do within the sphere of the gospel. Christ's death and resurrection for the salvation of sinners should always be stamped in our minds and our hearts. Teach your children and your grandchildren not empty morals, but instruct them in the gospel and the born-again life in the spirit that walks in Christ's likeness. And in all of this, remember that this charge is given to the church. We have a responsibility to one another as members of the church. And if you're a Christian, you need to be, you are to be um, committed to a local body of which you hold others accountable and they you. This morning, we will get to affirm a few new members. We have a responsibility to them.
And they have a responsibility to us as well. We're to instruct each other in the Lord for his glory and by his gospel. And all of this, and in all of this, motivated for, by love for God and love for one another and building up of the faith of one another in the gospel. Let's pray. Our Lord, I'm thankful for the glorious gospel. I'm thankful for the gift of the Holy Spirit you've given us, Lord, that he instructs us in your word, gives us understanding. I'm thankful as a Christian the gift of the church, Lord, that we can encourage one another, build one another in the faith. I pray for us in our responsibility to one another to uh, promote sound teaching. And Lord, when things arise in the church of, of false teachings, Lord, I pray that we are discerning enough to recognize it and to rebuke and to correct others from these false teachings. I pray as we continue on through 1 Timothy, Lord, that you will instruct your church, Lord, that we will be obedient to your word, walk in it, and I pray, Lord, th throughout, Lord, that you will encourage us, you will convict us of where we've gone wrong, and you will comfort us in the gospel. And I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.